Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hi, Sarah. Hey, Louise. Here we are for the season finale. The end of our season. I can't believe it. We just kind of wanted to pop on because we have, we already talked about our guests. We have the three writers from this season's books, but we just wanted to pop on to say what we're reading for this upcoming season. We're going to be reading American Baby by Gabrielle Glazer. A lot of people talked about this book to us, recommended it, and we haven't read it, either of us. So this is going to be, this is going to be cool. Yeah, we have quite a few books on our bedside tables that we will get to. So it's kind of fun just to make, I know this season we did something different. We had three books, but now we're going to go kind of go back to our format of a book. And then I think we're also, for whichever authors that are still with us, we will hopefully be able to bring each author on for the end of the end of the finale. I kind of like this new direction. So I do too. I think it's going to be great. And this gives you a week to go get the book, everybody. Exactly. Order it. Yes, we have a week. Okay, so we will see you in a few minutes. See you in a few. Okay, bye. Bye. Hi, listeners. We just wanted to thank our sponsor, S12F. He's a fellow adoptee dedicated to supporting other adoptees. And of course, we want to thank our Patreons. We couldn't do this weekly podcast without your support. We're so happy to be able to get these important stories out there. Thanks again. Don't forget to subscribe and share. Now back to our guest. Good morning. We are here for our season three finale, and we've invited all three authors of the books we've discussed this season. So we'll introduce A.M. Holmes, author of The Mistress's Daughter, Damon Davis, author of Who Am I Really?, and Megan Colhane galbraith author of The Guild of the Infant Savior. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. Thank Welcome. you. Thanks Good to be here with us. y'all. This is, we, this is neat. Yeah, we've really been looking forward to this. And really, thank you for taking the time. It's so hard to juggle different time zones and different schedules and all mm-hmm. of that. So let's just dive in with some of the common themes that run through your books and through our lives as adoptees. Mm-hmm. One word that really jumps out as a theme, and I think it manifests in different ways, is searching. Be it like searching for birth family, maybe place an adoptive family, identity, trying on different identities, relationships, just our places in the world. I feel like I'm still searching and I'm still discovering things about myself that I didn't know was there. And maybe that's age, but it kind of feels specific to adoption and the grappling I still contend with. Does anyone want to jump in with their thoughts or feelings about this? I've always thought of adoption as a diaspora, you know, which is not necessarily a searching, but it's a way of being in the world, right? It's the way of like, I think the searching for me is constantly trying to think about where is home? And, Mm -hmm. you know, when all these self-care experts talk about be the home inside yourself. And I was like, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. What does that really mean? I mean, I still struggle with, I don't know about both of you. I struggle with the ideas of like the wellness industry, self-care. Like, I don't know how to care for myself. I can barely self-soothe, you know, like, is it a bath? I'm not sure. But I think in people, like in the response to People who've like read my book, for instance, and when I read other adoptees' books, all I think about is how there's just this deep well of longing. It's this unfilled hole. And it's hard to describe. I mean, I think we've all done it. We've all tried to do it through words. But how do you fill a hole that's unfillable? Mm. That's a a fascinating question. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. The common theme of searching, you know, is so important. And I think a lot of times what folks end up doing is so, you know, on my podcast, who am I really? I have a lot of people tell me 
the title of your show really resonates with me because that is the search that a lot of people find themselves on, as you've both alluded to. This question of sort of, I think or thought I knew who I was. And now as I've truly focused in on what adoption means, this transplantation of a child from one family or living situation to a completely different one means there's a disconnect in a lot of elements of identity of, you know, sometimes self-worth and things like that, that people end up searching for. And I think you're absolutely right. Through the three of our books, you probably did find a lot of themes of searching, searching for connection, searching for sort of understanding oneself and so many other things, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just off what Dan was just saying, I think that question of, you know, who am I really? You know, we live in this moment where everyone is like identifying themselves as I am this and I am that. And I thought, what about people who have no idea who they are? You know, talk, I mean, I still feel thoroughly left out of pretty much everything, right? And I think everyone's like, oh, I'm claiming my identity is this. And I'm thinking, I'm claiming my, I don't, it's not an identity because I don't know what it is. So, you know, that is a big, for me, constantly, I am just ever aware that that search and that question remains forever open. And I'm not sure, going back to what was already said too, I'm not sure that it can ever even be answered. I mean, we can make up, we can construct identities and apply them to ourselves, almost like, hello, my name is stickers. Mm-hmm. But given the transplantation that you just spoke about, I don't know that there is the articulation of an actual organic identity is very hard to come by because in many ways, that very primitive self is not articulated and doesn't find you know full growth because it's so busy scrambling to catch up to outside expectations and other things that people are applying and just a kind of confusion that we have no language for until we get to be around this age, whatever. Right. Right. (laughs) Right. To your point, A.M., like, and to Damon, you know, it's incredible that we've all become writers because our trauma was pre-verbal. And to both your points, like, how do you, (laughs) how do you write about something that you couldn't right. articulate, right? Or you didn't have words for, or you can never have real words for. I'm writing oh. something right now, a, a book of like essays about, you know, like a humorous thing about searching for your identity through bad decisions, which is what I'm, you know, kind of calling that. But <laughs> all throughout, as I reflect on my life, it's just the only theme throughout is just searching and changing my identity and adapting, yes. adapting, you know, to what the circumstances yeah. are around me. Chameleons. I, I have a yeah. little girl I'm writing about in a middle school book and I, it's taking me back to my childhood and I, it's like almost I'm sitting there and I'm in, I'm her thinking, where am I? Why am I with these people who I love, but do they love me? Who am I? And just, just hearing you all, I'm getting emotional. It's, you're touching on all of it, you know, well, beautifully. I'm curious about for others too, but I'm always still surprised at how precarious it all seems. That at any moment, the rug can come out from under and whatever I thought I had kind of firmed up for myself is gone. And so that can mean if a close personal relationship goes awry, if something else happens, even if something, you know, in my teaching life at a university who obviously plays the role of parent and employer, you know, if it goes awry, it all of a sudden I'm back to square one. Yeah. It is so hard. This kind of work, you know. It's work every single day. And sometimes to your point, I feel like I'm also on this roller coaster. Just you identifying that like an institution is like a parent was just opened something up for me also. Like, oh, wait a sec. Yeah. I mean, there's things like I feel like I can have enormous growth professionally. Maybe things don't bother me now that they did a year ago. But boy, oh boy, that panic is like... <laughs> Right under the surface all the time. The abandonment, I think. I think that's what it is. It's like this abandonment panic. It's a lot of control. I feel there's, we're always trying to control. And when you're in control, it's fine. If something's going to go awry, it's not a normal reaction. It's like, I've lost everything. So hard not to control anymore. Like Mm -hmm. it's the hardest thing to put down. I think getting very personal. Like I have a very close relative who is struggling with alcoholism. And so 
going to Al-Anon and the idea of putting aside any control is so difficult, but also like probably one of the most soothing things I can think of. But day after day, I have to be like, no, I surrender. (laughs) I just surrender. Like, it's all going to be good. But I think my, I mean, I'm even drinking from like my friend, Kathy gave me these what are these? The catastrophe? Oh, I've seen that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to drink my giant thing of coffee. Cause like that's where I go constantly. It's like, oh, should I choose the light or should I choose the dark? I'm gonna go to the dark. That sounds fun. That's the place I'm comfortable, <laughs> right? Somebody said something about I think AM said it, transplanting, or Damon mm-hmm. maybe Damon initially said, said that. Mm-hmm. It and it just made me think about, you know, when you move like an indigenous plant into a new oh situation and will it thrive? Will it die? It's always a risk. I don't know. That's just what popped into my head. Yeah. And it, and it requires you, I've tried this very thing, right? Taking a plant from, you know, say the Caribbean and bringing it back to Maryland. And you're thinking, all right, what were the conditions that this thing needed there that I'm going to try to put in place here? And how do I synthetically create it? And it's a lot of work. And this Mm -hmm. is probably thematic of what adoptees feel is this synthetic creation of a home that you can be nurtured in and grow and thrive. And if all of the conditions aren't present, that might have been present in the family that you came from that, you know, shares your similar sort of interests and has, you know, sort of a shared background and history and all this other stuff. If it's not present, you're trying to synthetically create the environment for growth. And it, a lot of times it doesn't work. And it's for that very reason. It's an interesting analogy that you, you know, you need the nutrients in the soil. You need the same kind of humidity in the air. And the same is true for family. You need to be around the same kinds of folks who mirror you, who have your history, who have shared and similar interests and get you. And if those elements aren't there, then it will be challenging to thrive. Then you have that hole that Megan talked about that mm-hmm. somehow needs to be filled often with bad things. I was going to say, I think your, your plant may, you know, analogy, you probably do more work on the plant than most people do figuring that out with their children. Not Yes. Well, I, mean, I was going right. to say, yeah, one of the things too, just right off that too, is that one of the complexities of adoption is that That would be the ideal situation where somebody's thinking, where did this little plant come from and what circumstances and what does it need? But Mm. often one of the dominant themes is the child is adopted to fulfill the needs of the adoptive Mm -hmm. parent. And those needs are very complex and the poor little adopted kid has no clue. And so I think that adopted people are often first and foremost put in the position of trying to figure out what that family needs and expects Mm -hmm. and whatever the child, the adoptee needs is is really secondary to what that system seems to need. Mm. And then, and then becomes that process of adaptation, but it's, it's not with the best interests of the adopted child first and foremost, usually. Yeah. This is something I've started to talk about more and more because I think you guys probably get this too. Folks who are, working in adoption are asking adoptees to say, like, come speak to us about what you think. And this is definitely one of the themes that I've started to bring up more and more is that among the changes that need to happen in the adoption process, one of them needs to be sort of an upfront acknowledgement and sort of therapeutic process of the reason why the adoptive parents need or want to adopt. Mm. Because the idea that you can take a child and put them as a band-aid over the wound of the adoptive parents. They were not able to conceive. They conceived and the child passed away or whatever the circumstances were that requires or they feel is necessary for them to adopt a child or if it's just out of the goodness of their heart that they want to have a child. Whatever it is, there's an issue there that needs to be dealt with first because the child you're bringing into the home is not the band-aid for that issue. These are two separate coins as well. There's the reason why the child needs to be adopted in the first place. There's a circumstance over here for why that child is available to be adopted. And then there's the reason over here why the adoptive parents feel the need, want to adopt, and they need to address that first. So you can't Mm -hmm. just conflate the two and say, well, we'll just put a child over here and then everything will be fixed. Folks need to do their work 
to understand how they need to heal first. And then let's put some love into a child and have it be sort of a process that flows in that way, in my opinion. Yeah. And systemically, the two things that are baked into maybe three things that are baked into adoption are shame, secrecy, and saviorism, right? The three S's. Right. I just said that. I don't even know <laughs> where that pretty, came from. Well three done. S's. Now it's a thing, Megan, the three but, S's. <laughs> and it starts with shame, right? It starts with shame, secrecy is next, and saviorism is third. And how do you undo? I mean, I'm speaking as a 1960s, like it's a baby scoop era adoptee. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we all are baby two. scoop. I think, yeah. So, you know, I, I hate to say it, but in unraveling my issues of like, why I do bad things to myself, why, you know, all the things that have led me here, I think, oh, the epiphany for me was like, you know what? I was born of a shameful act. Therefore, I am the embodiment of shame. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I have to grapple with I am living, I'm the living embodiment of someone's shame, right? And then go forward from there. So thank you, eating disorder. Thank you all, you know, thank you all the things that are typical (laughs) of like we find with adoptees, but also coming to like, I'm 56, finally realizing like, it's not our fault. We didn't control these circumstances, right? But how do we forgive ourselves for something that we don't have to forgive ourselves for? I, yeah, I don't this know. This is great. I'm glad you raised this because this is something I find really interesting is that adoptees end up trying to own someone else's decisions, yeah. right? Yes, we are sort of the product of how we got there based on their decisions. And we're the product of the transplantation that happened, the adoption surrender, as it were. But one of the things I try to challenge people on is not owning other people's stuff, right? I'm here and I may be here because of a violent act or some really poor decision-making on a one-night stand or whatever the sort of circumstance that came together that created me in this place, that happened 50 years ago. I'm owning what I do with it going forward. I'm not owning, forgive me, I'm not owning your shit right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is, that's your thing, your mm-hmm. embarrassment, your shame, whatever that is, not my problem, right? I have to go forward with the life that I've been given and make it as strong as possible. And so I try to encourage people not to own other people's stuff because it'll wear you out trying to fix somebody else's problem that you didn't create. And mm-hmm. it was 56 yeah. years before you know, you ever started to have the ability to make decisions for yourself. So I definitely encourage people don't own your birth parents problems, their shame, their guilt. That is not yours to own. You need to own what you've done with yourself and how you're moving forward, in my opinion. And it's shame and guilt on both sides, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not just birth. I mean, you're shame and guilty. If you want to explore yourself, that's a new Mm -hmm. I mean, I feel just coming into that in my 50s, like, oh, I'm allowed. I am allowed to put myself Mm -hmm. first. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's saying that is one thing. Yeah. Being able to do that is a whole different thing. And especially like for me, it wasn't until, I mean, I paid a lot of lips. I knew I went to therapy at 20. I knew I have abandonment issues. I, it didn't connect for me until just a couple of years ago when we started this podcast. And then the veil was lifted of seeing how damaging that, you know, and the self-worth that is still so hard to, mm. like, honestly, when someone has said, do inner child work, and I've tried it, and I'm just <laughs> repulsed by it. And sometimes I'll think, oh, God, my dog doesn't even love me. I mean, these are crazy thoughts that is hard to get <laughs> yeah. to work through. And I don't know how to do it. I've been trying and trying and trying. And maybe it's just not going to happen. You know, it's mm-hmm. possible. Oh, you know, just take a bath. Self-care. <laughs> just like... <laughs> I don't even have a bath. Do some affirmations. What? Affirmations. Just affirmations. <laughs> when you say like, even like do some inner child work, I picture myself like going to like a crib or whatever to pick up a baby. <laughs> There's no one there. 
<laughs> yeah. yes. It's really no. awkward. Yeah. I've had to do it where you hug yourself. You're like, I, I'm not good at that. I can't do that. Like, I don't awkward. like being hugged. Right? <laughs> no, do not hug me. Right? Exactly. Someone yeah. hugged me tight last night and I wouldn't let me go. I had a real reaction. Right. I was acting really weird. I was like, I can't keep yeah. hugging this person. Very strange. Mm. The the safest I ever feel in life is at like nine o'clock at night when I'm under the covers and (laughs) nobody's around. I mean, that that isn't great. Yeah. (sighs) Well, speaking of that, all of your parents, we're all adoptees who are now parents with children that we're raising. For me, I (laughs) raised raised and yes, uh, and somewhat still raising, right? And I feel in my own life, like had I known what I know now, just the last few years, I would have definitely parented different because I didn't have abandonment issues. I had a therapist once tell me, I'm like, what are you talking? I don't have that, you know, until this podcast, until really figuring this out. So, you know, for me, I would change a lot. Would anybody chime in on that as well? Or, you know, I feel like I've passed down a lot of my issues that I'm undoing by having those conversations. I am trying to have the conversations. I guess it's really interesting. Yes. Oh, it's all so tied up. So tied up. I, you know, I had my youngest son and my, you know, I was reckoning at the time with postpartum depression and my adoptive mother dying of pancreatic cancer and having a birth mother in my life, you know, kind of tenuously. And there's so many things. I mean, I would like to do better as a parent. I think all the time, like, have I abandoned my kids? Am I in their life enough? Am I doing enough? You know? And that's just like a recipe for torture. That's like me staying up at night, cycling through all those things. And it's the 2am wake up and like, Oh, (laughs) and they're adult kids. They're like, you know, and that's where like, I have to, you know, when I was raising them, I proudly, they proudly called me like my uh, mama bear. Cause I'm like, I will rush to your defense, but boy, that does not work when they're adults. Like nobody wants, you know, I don't want somebody constantly coming in and being like, I'll fix it for you. I mean, sometimes I do, but you can come to my house. No. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes I really, that's all I want. Like, can yeah. you please come and do this thing? Oh, yeah. God. I've gotten a lot of back off, you know, back off, you know, it's enough. Yeah. I just, you know, I had to realize like the tactics that I thought were good when they were kids are not now. And I have to look at myself and do the growth to be like, to grow with them. Right. Yeah. I love my little babies though. You know, I will say a couple things. One is that I feel always bad slash guilty about the ways in which my adoption and or childhood trauma I can see sometimes the way that they are, you know, either enacted on or toward my child or just the way I am because of those things. And it makes me different from other parents. And in that funny way, you don't know that, of course, until you have a kid. And I remember she was a baby. And I remember taking her to like a psychologist to talk about attachment. And then, and it was so hard to like get this infant wrapped up into the psychologist or whatever. And she's like, you know, and then I remember thinking, I could just sit at home with the baby, (laughs) spend time with her. And that would pretty much do a better job than whatever this is. But even the insecurity of of thinking, oh, I can do that. Right. So I had to, you know, drag this little infant really far away to sit in someone's office and have them either analyze or try to explain that to me. And I thought even that sense of like not trusting yourself, not thinking like, I don't know how to do this. I've never had a relative before. And then yes. also those funny things, which you guys might have too, you know, this is the first biological person I've ever spent time with. And when we fight, it's like, you know, yeah. and it's horrifying on the other hand. It's so cool because I've never had that with anybody before. And it might look very intense to people who aren't us, but we both know it's like a thunderstorm and then it's over. There, there's so a comfort in fighting. That. That's yeah. 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 Cause yeah. the person cares enough to battle back with you. Ah, yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And As then to just stay. being like, well, buzz That's off. And, and they just abandon the challenge That's and it true. feels like an ultimate abandonment. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. If you care enough to be passionate enough to fight with me about something, it means you care enough to stay engaged on something with me. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Or feeling comfortable enough to know yes. that, okay, this is that person I can fight with because mm-hmm. we're right. Together. And there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of 
not comfort, but there's something to the fact that you can battle with someone. And as you've said, AM, like, know that this was a flash storm, right? It rolled through, it poured down rain and it went away and the sun's back out, right? It's, it's really yeah, interesting. I did know. not grow up with that. I don't know. Why. Like, <laughs> I, nobody modeled that for me. It was like, don't no. talk about your feelings. And then, then when I was trying to raise my sons, my ex was always like, you know what I say, boys, push it down. And I would just like would go wild with rage. Like that is not, we're trying to raise, you know, sensitive kids. Like we have two sensitive boys and you have to let them talk about feelings. I was not allowed to do it. I didn't necessarily know how, but I was like, we're going to have family dinners and we're going to talk about our feelings. And it just, yeah, it was. I'm glad you said that about the boys feelings, because this is something that I've been trying to bring out of the guys that are listening to my show or bring to the women who have guys in their life who are not emoting, Mm -hmm. because this is something that is a frequent theme is guys are told from a very young age, hey, man, push it down, man up. Oh, don't show that. And it, it, it happens in ways that we don't even really calculate. You know, if I'm you know, I used to play soccer and lacrosse. And if I was in like the locker room and I was like feeling some kind of way about one of the girls, one of the guys in the locker room would probably say something like, man, there's so many girls out there. Like, don't, you know, chase after just her and push down my feelings about being attracted to this person, for example. Or, you know, if you're feeling super emotional about something, guys are like, hey, man, get over it, you know? And so we're frequently taught to not explore our emotions. Conversely, I feel, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong here, that women are very practiced in their emotions because my sense is I had a lot of female friends when I was, you know, a younger, much younger guy when I was in middle school and stuff. And the girls would get together and talk about the boys that they liked. And it it was an exchange and it was very practiced. And I'm sure that that is something that, and I'm saying this in the form of relationships, but I also know that, you know, it's more acceptable for women to be more openly expressive about their emotions from a younger age. So the whole thing is more practiced, whereas guys don't get to a place of feeling sort of inner strength enough to emote until they're much, much older and we're not as practiced at it as you guys are from a much earlier age, in my opinion. This is kind of what I've put together. So the thing that you were talking about, Megan, about your husband sort of pushing down the boys in your family to say, hey, don't express that emotion. It is really damaging because they don't get to a place of learning how to express it, learning how people in their life will see their expression of emotion and sort of being in the practice of Mm -hmm. learning who's safe to express it with, how it's safe to express it, et cetera. I want to say one more quick thing just on the whole parenting thing. I don't really talk about this much, but one of the things that I learned after doing the podcast was a bit of a mistake in our parenting but was also an extreme challenge. And you have to make a decision in the moment was, you know, we adopted our niece and nephew on my wife's side of the family. And, you know, they were challenging, just to be blunt, you know, they had lost their parents to my brother-in-law took his own life. My, Mm. the mother of the children sort of left them in the Caribbean and they were then later transplanted from house to house to house. And then they ended up in our house in a different country new parents, et cetera, et cetera. And they were really tough to deal with. And our son had just gone kind of off the rails in middle school. And we made the decision to send him away to military school. And it hit me when I was speaking with another adoptee or something that there's this theme of being sent away as an adoptee, right? Fear of being returned, as it were. Mm And it hit me that while behaviorally it was the right decision for him because he needed the structure of military school, where every single thing you do has either a reward or a consequence, that was fantastic. However, what we did was move him again. And I'm sure that that had an effect on him as an adoptee. And I've always felt badly about it because I wish that there was something else that we could have done. In our parenting to prevent having to move our adopted child to yet another environment as if to say, sorry, you're not working here. Here's another place where you need to go. And 
again, you can probably sense my guilt, but also like my challenge of figuring out what the heck we could have done that would have been different. But I just wanted to sort of admit that that's something that I've thought about a lot. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. When you were speaking about the males and pushing things, I think I parented a little bit. I don't know that I was a great communicator. You know what I mean? Like I wanted to be the best mom and I'm loving and I was a teacher at one point. So you have all that, but I don't think I had open communication because I didn't know how to really do it myself. And so I think I actually was more male in that way. Like, Mm. oh, you're fine. Come on. You know, that kind of thing, which is interesting. You were saying it usually comes from the male side, but I think Mm. I am, I'm more comfortable with men in general and sports. I I suspect it could have been both though. There's probably a both and there. There's, Mm -hmm. you didn't have the skill yourself as you've just admitted. And you may have adopted what society has said about how you treat males, right? Mm -hmm. It could have been ingrained in you that this is what you do with guys is you teach them to be tough. And you as a good mother are teaching them to be tough. I'm making this up as I go, but I suspect that there was probably a combination of both things in there. Yeah, you could be right. And I was kind of boyish growing up, you know, kind of jock and I'm fine. And God forbid we talk about feelings. So (laughs) I think uh, for me, like I wanted my boys to talk about their feelings and I would be trying to pull that out of them and trying to cultivate a place that allowed them to tell me their feelings. And I think in many ways they did, but what I find is that I wasn't telling, I wasn't sharing how I was feeling Uh, mm -hmm. and, and maybe that's, you know, after writing this book, AM, I don't know how, and, or Damon, like after you wrote your book, like how your families reacted, but mine were like, so, you know, for you betrayed everybody, you know? Yeah. So, and part of it is like, well, I couldn't tell my feelings. So I'm going to put my feelings on paper and my feelings are valid. This back, sort of backlash. I wonder if we can talk about that too. Like when you finally find your voice and talk about your feelings, how people react when you do that. It's complicated. To the previous sort of Fred for a second, it's interesting because as much as I would say I want my daughter to talk about her feelings, I also know I'm not that good at dealing with that. Oh, and me too. My, and I'm like in that impulse of oh, I'll, I'll try to fix it. And, yes. and learning how to just listen to someone's feelings and kind of acknowledge them without attempting to do something about it. So I would say very much still a work in progress. In terms of the book stuff, it's really interesting. So with my book, I I sort of accidentally on purpose, really didn't write very much about my adoptive family. And in part because I guess I have to live with them in some ways. And, and I didn't want to, and there's a lot there. You know, I grew up, I, I was adopted into a family where a child had died who lived to be nine years old. And I was adopted six months later in a private adoption. And I hope to write more about really growing up essentially as a ghost, right? That's a big, big thing, but it's not in there. So the nice thing is that my adoptive mother, I don't know if anyone else in my family read the book, said to me, oh, I think this is your best book. And to me, which was sort of funny, I was like, I thought, well, what about all those other books I wrote, the novels and so on? <laughs> and then my other weird concern was I realized that people in the family that I'm not necessarily close to, but various cousins and other people could now read this book mm. and know things about me and our family that I hadn't told them, including, you know, a lot of them didn't really know that much about where I had come from anything. So that was unnerving. And then in my biological family, I think those that may have read it and so on, some of them were quite surprised by it and upset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I also, as you said, you know, I told the truth. I had to make a very big decision at one point. And this was when the New Yorker magazine was going to be running an excerpt of the book. And I had changed my biological parents' names. And they called me and they said, we have to fact check this. Like, Excuse me? Uh, and I said, you know, I'm, I have a really good reputation as a writer and like, this is all true or whatever. And they're like, well, we have to fact check it. That's our thing. And they have this double standard where is that a, a person cannot be recognizable even to themselves if it's a certain kind of writing and so on. So they actually had to call my biological father who then got on the phone with his lawyer and they asked him like 32 questions. Oh my God. And I said, can I, this was also fascinating. I said, can I be in on that? I want to hear that. 
And then they were like, no, you can't. And to me, that again was like that adoption thing of, no, this is all secret. We're going to call your biological father, uh-huh. something you wrote. You can't listen in to hear what we're asking and what he's saying. And that to me also was like that rug fell out from under feeling. But all that to say, and then I had to make a decision ultimately with the book of, was I going to use their their correct names? And I thought, this is fascinating. I'm I'm still protecting them. Yeah. And I'm acting like I am something to be ashamed of. And it was a really, I cannot even stress how hard of a decision it was. And I thought, I cannot be ashamed of who I am. I cannot be ashamed by their behavior. This is all true. And I have to just use their names and let the chips fall where they fall. But it was excruciating. Oh, God, I know it really was. It is. It is. That's terrifying. That fact checking. Oh, my God. Yes. And they were like, we will not run it if you don't let us do this. And it felt, I felt so confused <laughs> and sort of abused in a way. Yeah, and it's really, And I have to say, I felt really unwell in that period. Yeah. Not okay. Yeah. I I'm was sorry. As you were think, talking about the fact that they were going to fact check, but you didn't get to be in, in the conversation. <laughs> Sounds a lot like the birth record issue. I was just thinking. Uh-huh. Thing, right. Where someone's <laughs> sitting there and they're looking at your record and they're going, oh, this is really fascinating. I wish you could Sorry, see Sorry, you can't know. Right. Anyway, that was That's that piece whole... I'm sure was very triggering for a lot of folks. Yeah. And it's funny because in my effort, even still, like it's, you know, it's a New Yorker and I love the New Yorker and it's this incredibly, you know, obviously brilliant magazine. And I'm sure that no one there was thinking, oh, this would be really upsetting for this, this person to have to go through this process. They're just like, this is what we do. This is our job. Same as the birth record people. Like, this is just what we do. This is what the rules say. But it is interesting. And, you know, we, I'm sure we all have that throughout different aspects of society, like medical records. Every time I have to go to the doctor and it's like family history, there isn't a box for I'm adopted. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there should be a box, at of least. Of course, there should be a box. Always. Yeah. But I'm it's sure. like, and then I go, why do you not know your medical history? And I'm like, uh-huh. you know, leave me alone. And then I just go, why the doctor's <laughs> office? So I think there's a lot of stuff like sociologically that we don't. Yeah. It's a huge topic. All of this. It's just listening to you. It's like, uh, you know, why, why don't they have a box? I'm sorry. Like there's so many things that we get tough. We had a guest on recently who's a late discovery adoptee. And he said something to Sarah and I about, I was just re-listening to it. You have to, you two have had to have armor your whole lives that you didn't know you were building. And his came like rushing in at one point. I was thinking, really, we have had that. And it never really struck me until I said it. Yeah. We have these little things. We're making excuses. I don't know this. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing, though, about the doctor's office and not having that box, it's, you know, society and, you know, it's one issue in which is not divisive in, our, in this country is that all everybody thinks mm-hmm. adoption is a wonderful thing. And yet yeah. it's, you know, people still react like, oh, you're adopted, or there's nothing in the doctor's office. If that is the case, you know, it's kind of a dichotomy. It's strange, I think. I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think there's this paradox of the society glorifying motherhood, yet demonizing mothers, you know, and it's like, you know, everything from the policies made about our bodies from the, you know, all the way back to Eve, man, all the way back to Eve. Yeah. Erasing who Mary Magdalene really was. God, you just brought Mary Magdalene? You said Eve. So it made me think of how <laughs> Mary Magdalene was, was turned <laughs> into a, you know, a about, prostitute, a, even though she was yes, not. But yes. She was not. I went all the way to France researching a book that I probably won't write now for other reasons, but about Mary Magdalene, like following her footsteps because of my interest in women's voices being erased, mm-hmm. you know, the whole Madonna horror complex, like silence, like all those things I wanted to explore. Oh, it was fascinating. We walked all the way up to her grotto. Oh, St. Wow. Balm. Yeah. We got up there at my friend, Kathy. I love her so much. She and her husband went on this trip with me. We got all the way up and it was like a torturous walk up and she pokes her head out from the top and she's like, it's closed. And I was like, wait, the grotto is closed? Mary Magdalene's grotto cannot ever be closed. She's like, no, the gift shop is closed. And I was like, oh, no. Because <laughs> anybody who 
knows me love, knows I know I love the gift shop more than <laughs> you say sometimes. You do it. Yeah. So I was like, how are we going to get our tchotchkes? We're going to get our stuff to say we've been here. <laughs> Sorry, I, that was a little digression. But I was thinking about something about circling back to parenting because I was so focused on, and this I think is not just adoptees. I think this is also a generational thing because being a children of, of the me generation of parenting where you're on your own, you're, you know, latchkey kids or whatever yes. it may be. I really was so focused on giving my son everything I didn't have. And so I was incessantly talking and I just remember one day driving him to school and he's staring off into space. I'm like, what are you thinking about? And he said, mama, I think most of the time when you ask me what I'm thinking, I'm really just not thinking about anything. <laughs> it's kind of <laughs> my son. Cause I would ask him that all the time. What are you thinking? What are you feeling? It's like, mom, you know what I'm feeling? You know what I'm thinking? He's like opening some pop tarts when I was saying he was there. It's like, I'm usually thinking about boobs. And when I'm not thinking about boobs, I'm thinking about food. <laughs> Demon's over there laughing. Like, uh-huh. that's hysterical. Yeah. It's like, oh, God. Oh. But I have noticed, and I know that my son won't be listening to this. One of the ways I think in which my attachment stuff affected my parenting was I go and visit him in Dallas and he lives with his girlfriend. And I just notice how he can be overly accommodating in his relationship. And I think that's a direct result of maybe how he saw me being overly accommodating. Mm-hmm. As yeah. a parent. Yeah. yeah. I mean. We teach what we know. We put, you yeah. know. Every generation makes it a little bit better. It doesn't all just go away. You know, like I want my son feels like he's a black sheep. Right. And I say to him, good. Black sheep, like break the narrative. Black sheep speak truths. You know, I feel like a black sheep or doing what I do or saying, you know, mm-hmm. writing what I write and like, good. You know, it's not, that's not a bad thing. What I am was saying about other relatives and people, because we think about our immediate who we're going to hurt by speaking out. Sarah and I have this podcast where we discuss things and personal things at the chapter reviews of your wonderful books, right? Which bring up things for us personally. And all of a sudden we're like, wow, we're putting all this out there. There is that the next level of who's like, wow, I didn't know this or boy, I had no idea she felt that way, you know, a little cooling off of people towards me. And I'm sure Sarah's had her things too. And no, 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 no one in my family listens. <laughs> not interested it's, in anything I did. Just my mom listens. It's something about coming into our own now and being able to say the truth and, and just sticking to that, like getting up every day and saying, this is a platform for all of us to be talking, which some adoptee somewhere will listen to this and something one of you said will help them you know, or all of it will help them. But I just feel it's very important to have our voices heard at this point. And it's difficult. And it is difficult because we are also still, maybe not all of us, I'm speaking for myself, but insecure still. Like I'm like a little kid with the insecurity. I'm fine until something happens. And then I'm, Mm -hmm. and then I'm seven and I'm like, Oh, no one loves me, you know? Yeah. Instantly. Yeah. I get it. I get it. You know, I feel like if Joe Rogan can have a goddamn podcast, (laughs) (laughs) talk about all we want. I don't know about it. Sometimes I say stuff and I'm just like, yeah, I forget, you know, it's out there. The key is not to go back and listen too much or watch yourself on YouTube ever. (laughs) (laughs) I think the, you know, this self-expression that we're all engaged in the writing of our books the podcasting that we're doing, the sort of extraction of these stories is so incredibly important because we're in this moment where people can find information about anything anytime they want. And we're dumping into that bucket our information about our experiences. And now you can find that. I've joked before, my wife is in the music industry and she's got this great graphic in her office of like the progression of how music has exploded over time. So it started off with just like, one, two, three forms of music, and those branch off into like eight, 10, 12 forms of music. 
And then there's 37 to 50 forms. And now there's like 150 different forms of music and different genres and it's global. And I say that to say, I feel like the expression of the adoption experience has experienced a similar expansion of, you know, there were probably one or two essays, you know, back in the seventies. And then there was a lot more, you know, expression of sort of what it means to be on a reunion registry, perhaps I'm making this up, but you know, over time, as the information got more and more available for people, there was more and more expression of what the experience was like as an adoptive parent, as an adoptee, as a, a birth parent. And even mm-hmm. this moment we're in right now where birth parents are speaking out more and yes. more and more is contributing to how we adoptees are learning what their experience was. And similarly, society writ large, mm-hmm. who believes that adoption is awesome and has glorified it and has this Savioristic sort of idealism of what adoption is, is getting some truth poured over them about what people's experiences were actually were. So all of that to say, I think we are lucky to be in a really valuable space where we have either created platforms or have found the ability to express ourselves in a way that others can take it in and say, oh, I pieces of that experience resonate with me. Mm-hmm. And here's how I'm going to go forward based on what I've learned from this person. Because I've spoken to some folks who have said, like, I, I don't know how to write this down, right? Or I'm not comfortable being on your podcast or another podcast or whatever. And so there are stories that are trapped away because people mm-hmm. haven't figured out how they can or want to express them. And the more that we all are doing this, I think we're drawing others out to say, hey, you know what? I think I could do that too. And we're all better for it, for for sharing these stories as openly and as honestly as possible. And as each of you has said, owning them, right? We're now adults. We've figured out our self-expression. We are owning our narrative and taking it in the ways that we can to build on ourselves. And I think that's empowering for other people to witness so that they too can join us on that sort of self-empowerment journey such as it is. I was really happy to see that New Yorker article come out uh, with the adoptee voices. I mean, that couldn't have been more validating, I felt, in terms of the publication in which it was. I want to write to her. She did a really great job to like centering adoptee voices in that. And and the writing itself like was pretty great craft exercise for me. It's excellent. Yeah. I think what Dan was saying is true also because... In some ways, because of sort of the movement of time from, you know, where adoption was certainly at the end of World War II and through the 1950s and then up into the 60s, 70s, it has changed. The, the sense of secrecy has changed a little bit, not completely, and the sense also of shame and so on. And then it's also super important now to think about what is the birth parents experience? Because yes. it's yeah. not without its consequences and so on. And the way that sort of people who are like, you know, adoption is the best thing ever. It's like, it's wonderful that it exists as an option and a possibility. And obviously, but also so complicated for all of those involved and really important to acknowledge that. So I think what you're saying, yes, makes perfect sense. And important for people, you know, I wrote about this in my book, but a very close friend, when I was talking about stuff said to me, do you think you're the only one who feels this way? Or is that just, or like, do all adopted people feel these things? And I think, not only do all adopted people feel these, all of these things also are universal in the search for identity and self and expression. Mm-hmm. Even mm-hmm. when I work with my students who are, you know, somewhere between like 18 and 21, they are going through these kind of crises that are similar to what's always at the core of my being of who am I? How do I belong? How am I different or the same as the family I grew up in? What do I want? How do I want to sort of begin to express and define and present myself. I mean, that's what we're dealing with pretty much on a daily basis, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Wow. Well, this has been a great conversation as always. I wish we could do this a lot more than we, than <laughs> yeah, we do. We don't have to record it. <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely. Like, wish we could all get together. Just, <laughs> do, just have coffee. Yeah. <laughs> just have a coffee. coffee. I would love well, to just have a coffee hour with you guys occasionally. Yeah, I would love I to would do love that. Oh, Absolutely. We just do that. We right? can do that. That Let's would be it. so fun. Everyone. Yeah. And, and invite, you know, bring in a couple more catastrophe mug. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll it send talk? you one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was great.
This was great. And your books really, Sarah and I, you know, we really delved into them. We read them slowly. We think about them and that they, they're life-changing for us. So thank you you for writing them. And mm -hmm. thank you for reading them and delving into them. It's such a treat to meet these guys. It's really, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, This is both of you, all of you. Thank you so much for that space and for reading. And it's so nice to meet you, Am and Damon. Let's have coffee again. Let's do it. Sounds good. Just got to get our time zones right. Just got to get our time zones. Coffee or drink. End of day is good too. Yeah. I'm here for that. Definitely. (laughs) Adoptee spritzers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Did you just add a fourth I'm one of those adoptees that that had to put drinking, by the way. So. (laughs) It's okay. I don't really drink. I'm the only person who keeps practicing and it doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. It was. It just always feels so comfortable. It feels yes, really it does. home. Talking to other adoptees feels home. Good word. Yeah. Good word. Thank you so much. Oh, Thank you. Care. Thanks for Thanks, convening y'all. us, y'all. It's wonderful Thanks. to see you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was just one of my favorite hours since yeah. we've started this podcast. I just love all three of them. And I don't know. I could just, like AM said, we could just have coffee without. (laughs) Right. I feel, I want to say, I'm saying it on here. I just, I love you because you and I come together and we create and we've manifested and we have these beautiful people in our lives because of what we manifested in this podcast. Like talking on the phone, let's start a podcast about what we know in our souls. Yes. And And then we get to have these just honest, deep raw conversations with people. It's yeah. it's the best thing in the world. Yeah. Each of them. I was like, this is so rich. I don't want it to end. Yeah. yeah. And I do really do believe there's people out there listening. This will change something with them. Mm-hmm. You know, hearing people, maybe they've read some of their books or they know them and they're thinking, oh, they're speaking about this. You know, this is just raw, real things. People live with these insecurities and fears and it's okay to come forward. Like Damon said, use our voices. Yep. Well, Sarah. <laughs> what do, what we do we say, Louise? We say it's another great episode. Another great episode. Yeah. See you next, next season. Time. See you next season. Yes. Mm-hmm. See you soon. See you soon. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time. 